John, another trade deadline has come and gone. This one with perhaps the biggest trade in the history of our game. Yeah, absolutely fantastic job by the Padres to get Juan Soto and Josh Bell in the same trade. They've got Fernando Tatis coming back. Their lineup will transform from mundane to spectacular. Well, we'll talk about that trade for sure. The ones we liked, the ones we didn't. We'll bear down on the Mets and Yankees. Jacob DeGrom's return. And Michael Kay will join us to talk about the passing of Vin Scully. All of that and more on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. John, you know, you could anticipate the trade deadline. We were certainly anticipating a Juan Soto trade. And then when it's made, there's still that moment like opening gifts at Christmas and you get one that still makes you shocked at the end. Uh, when we saw the total haul here, and I'll just yeah. I'll give the name, C.J. Abrams, Robert Hassel III. We were at the Futures game, John. He was talked yeah. about perhaps more than anyone at the Futures game. James Wood, Mackenzie Gore, uh, Jarlin, Susanna, and Luke Voigt well, was just thrown in at the end. I heard he wasn't too thrilled with the trade, getting traded to the last place uh, Nationals in the NL East. For Juan Soto... And Josh Bell. Let's not lose yep. Josh Bell in that. What'd you think when this went in, when it well, went down? Relatively early on trade deadline day. Well, we couldn't be surprised that it's the Padres. They obviously have the biggest gambling GM around, and I give them credit for and and I give their ownership credit to Peter Seidler for spending this kind of money in San Diego. Remember when they couldn't afford Chase Headley and they, you know, had no stars on that team, and now they've signed Tatis to this big deal. They signed Machado as a free agent, and now they get the best hitter in the game with Josh Bell, just kind of thrown in I've never seen a thrown in a throw in like that I mean just a great trade interesting trade and uh, AJ Preller he's kind of a quirky character isn't he yeah I mean it's fascinating just think about if you're the manager of the team Bob Melvin you worked for the Oakland A's the kind of trades the Oakland and Oakland was bold when they could be bold but nothing like this I mean maybe no other team has ever been quite this bold in the history of the game I was thinking about this last night John if I had told you like a week ago the San Diego Padre trade deadline was to acquire Josh Hader, Drury, and Josh Bell. You'd go, wow, what a trade deadline they had. They added, uh, you know, one of the preeminent closers, a, a strong right-handed bat in Drury. You know, Josh Bell's having his best season. It gets lost because of Soto, but a switch hitter, could hit in the clutch, doesn't strike out, seems to hit good pitching well. What a haul for them to do that. Oh, by the way, they got the best hitter in the game also. They didn't just get him for this year. They got him for the next two pennant races. But it came at the cost of the top of a very strong farm system. So I guess my thought is, what do you think at a time where people treat prospects like Fabergé eggs? What do you think about the willingness of this general manager yeah. to say, I'll find more. Yeah, I mean, that's him. He is a big gambler, and he's great at procuring talent. He's been that way since he was with Texas. That's how he got a GM job from out of nowhere. I mean, he was not the main assistant in Texas. He was a guy who was out getting players in Latin America. He taught himself Spanish. Very bright guy. Went to Cornell. In fact, I, I knew him from when he went was at Cornell. He came up to me and he, he, he loved your stuff at the Post and he read me at Newsday. Lived in Huntington, Long Island and uh, 
Cornell guy, and he came up. He was looking for a job in baseball. He was probably 21 years old, I guess, and just a guy who loves baseball. And, you know, I of course, at the time, I didn't know he would become this, the most aggressive, quirky GM in the game. I went and visited him when the Padres were in town against the Mets uh, a week or two ago. I mean, he's in there wearing gym shorts. You know, I'm not even sure they were washed. I don't know if you saw this guy. It was something else. And this is the guy who is really the mover and shaker in baseball right now. I remember when it came out, when we were at the All-Star game, that Juan Soto is now available and I wrote that day, and it's not some great, I'm not Nostradamus. I wrote that day a column why the Padres were probably going to get this guy, named the prospects, and it's because this guy is predictably bold. So, I mean, you know, obviously Soto is the key guy, but behind it all is A.J. Preller. There's no doubt about that, John. I think there were other teams trying to be aggressive. I think the Cardinals were trying to be aggressive. I think the Dodgers were trying to be aggressive. I think behind the scenes there were several teams, the Rangers, the Giants, uh, trying to see if they could get in. But I tend to not love cliché, and yet A.J. Preller is the bull in the china shop. Other executives are appalled by this because they all read from the same manual about how to, va- you know, this is future value of these players. And one thing I always think about is, Run your finger down. Let's let's just say use wins above replacement. If you run your finger down a wins above replacement list, the top 50 or 75 guys, how few of them repeat it two years, three years, four years? There's very few great players who change things over and over and over again. The Padres' success to some degree is... Nobody saw Fernando Tastiz Jr. as this kind of player when they yep. acquired him. Like this idea that you know the prospects, yep. who they're going to yeah. be in that way. Maybe AJ knew, right? For his oh, father yeah. and everything. Go, you, yeah. you know, I, I, when that trade was made, I remember being on the phone with a White Sox executive and say they got Shields at the time, who was a big name pitcher. And I remember saying, uh, who, who are you giving up? Oh, he, he said, oh, some nobody, some, uh, some guy who was never going to make it. And it turned out to be Fernando Tatis Jr., you know, I mean, the guy was 17 at the time, and uh, they didn't know, even though his father, we know Fernando Tatis, I mean, we knew he at least he had bloodlines, but AJ had been over there and scouted him since he was probably, I don't know, nine years old. Yeah, you know? With all these great prospects that get traded, him and Jordan Alvarez, nobody knew who Jordan Alvarez right. was either, got traded for Josh Fields. So this idea that any team in its farm system has three, four, seven, like I'll hear, like we have 10 great prospects. Yeah, no, you right. don't. No way. It's hard. There's only 770-ish guys play at a time. About 50 to 75 of them make a real difference. The idea that you have five to seven of them in your organization is ludicrous, and they're protected in a way that I find ridiculous. And I think, you know, you got to go out, and AJ has the right thing. We found these guys. Let's go find more. They're just yeah. seeds, and we'll decide how to plant yeah. the seeds at the time. Now, I think all these executives will say there will be a cost at some point. Right. But what's the value? The Padres, especially once the Chargers left San Diego, they're the game in town. They're drawing full houses now, right? What What's the walk-up going to be for these first few games? They sold oh, out it's done. instantly. Yeah, right? it's over. Like, there's a great value in being interesting and outstanding. And I'll just add one last thing, John. Preller admires great talent. He sees the Dodgers 19 times a year. He knows to get by and through the Dodgers, which is probably what it will take to win the NL West, and which won't come this year, and win an NL championship. He's got to beat that talent. 
You don't do that with rudimentary talent. You do that with great talent. And he wants to slug it out with the Dodgers. Yeah, he was able to do this because he had gore. He had a hassle. I mean, certainly they drafted higher because they weren't doing that great, but they picked the right guys consistently. One negative to this, they're not going to catch the Dodgers this year. The right. Dodgers are the best team. And they're probably, at this point, it looks like they might have to play the Braves in the first round. So they're going to be a great show. Probably 50-50 whether they can beat the Braves. They have a fantastic team, but the way it's set up now, there's a big value in winning the division, as there should be. I'm glad you you mentioned the Dodgers, too. In terms of procuring talent, they've done an incredible job drafting, developing. They have so many good players. They could have made a great deal as well, but they didn't, you know, and they've done it. You you pointed this out in the post a few times. They've gone out and gotten Darvish and Machado and Turner and Scherzer at the deadline. So they're willing to do it. They're willing to gamble. But at some point, you've got to stop. And I think that's the point. They hit that point. I mean, A.J. Preller was just hell-bent on getting this guy. He had scouted Juan Soto when he was a teenager. He loved him. He came close to signing him. At some point, he, he went off of him and then went toward Moncada. I think he probably regretted that at, at this point. He didn't get end up getting Moncada anyway. And so he, he had it in his mind, I've got to get this guy. And when you do that, you cannot beat the guy. I do think it's interesting that the Dodgers, the Padres got the best player, arguably, in the game. The Dodgers got the worst player, arguably, in the <laughs> game, right? I mean, Joey Gallo, we've been watching him. I mean, I, I don't want to pick on him. And, and I've seen where he said that he feels like garbage or whatever. I don't know if we can say bad words on the show. I know you did last week, but I'm not going to do it yet. You know, he feels like whatever. He's That's a my good lane, guy. Jan. Yeah, John, Stay out of my lane. I'm going to stay out of that lane. <laughs> But, you know, uh, it's good that he got away. I think Milwaukee would have been a good spot for him. We'll see about L.A. New York was not the spot for him. L.A.'s not so easy either. We talk about it as being some easy laissez-faire. No way. They are. They want to win there. Yeah, so uh, good transition, John. We could talk about some of the other stuff that went down at the trade deadline. One thing I'll note about the Dodgers is in all those trades, Machado, Darvish, so far for Turner and Scherzer. They're exceptionally good at scouting themselves. They don't trade Will Smith. They don't trade Seager. They don't trade Bueller. They yeah. don't trade Urias. They're like the early 90 Yankees under Stick Michael, figuring out which guys are Bernie Williams, which guys Posada, yeah. Pettit, Jeter, Rivera, etc. So I think that when it came to this trade, they knew they were giving away fat that the Nationals were coming after the meat, like guys who would be making yeah. a difference. Mm. And I think they tapped out because they weren't willing to do. I think AJ probably feels that mm. some of the players he traded here are going to be high-level players. But to your mm. point, he had an obsession on Soto. So the Dodgers really didn't do much. Go ahead. Tell me somebody who you like who did something. Who 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 stood yeah, out to I, you? you? know, I like Houston. I thought Houston got the two players that the Mets should have gotten. I we'll talk about you, the yeah. Mets, uh, you know, in the next segment, but... Uh, I love Vasquez, the catcher, good two-way player. I mean, uh, terrific hitter, good defender. Uh, the Mets OPS, uh, again, we're going to talk about the Mets. Um, I guess shouldn't harp on this too much, but their OPS of their catchers is very low, like five-something, right? So I thought Vasquez would have been good. Vasquez and Mancini, who's a great guy, inspirational guy, can play the outfield a bit. They're a little worried about Brantley, can play first base. Gurriel obviously is not doing it this year. Could D8 some. So I thought Mancini was the perfect guy for them. And Vasquez, I mean, Maldonado's a great defender. 
but he's hitting like 150 again. So I think it's good to get a hitter in there as well. Yeah, I, I, I wonder still, you know, Verlander's going to pitch to Maldonado. I wonder how many of the Houston starters still would prefer to pitch to Maldonado. But I'm a big Christian Vasquez fan. I think of all the guys who got traded within reason, he was, we'll get to the Mets in a bit, he was the guy the Mets should have pressed harder to get. I'm going to throw out a team I like, John. I like what the Phillies did. Yeah, that was my next one. For a team which everyone told me, no yeah. prospects, no prospects. They ended up with probably the best relief pitcher, not named Josh Hader, who was acquired in this. And David Robertson still curveballing after all these years. Again, a guy the Mets very much were interested in because of his splits that he could get lefties out also. And the Mets are without a true lefty reliever. I liked that Noah Syndergaard is he the old Noah Syndergaard. He's not, but he gets the pitch behind Nola Wheeler. and Wheeler, etc. Again, with Zach Wheeler, he's a partner like right. in the old Met rotations. So, like, I think that's fine. Plus, they were such a bad defensive team. And by getting Brandon Marsh and Sosa, the shortstop from the Cardinals, they helped transform the middle of their diamond a little bit also to be able to catch the ball better for those pitches. Yep. And right now we know if you don't think the Giants have a chance to make the playoffs, there's only seven teams with a chance to be the six, right? And we know the Mets are going to make it, the Dodgers are going to make it, someone's going to win in the NL Central. Right. It's essentially probably going to come down to the second-place team in the NL Central and the Phillies for who makes the playoffs. And so I think the Phillies armed themselves yeah. well here, especially if they, they could get Harper back to make a run. Yeah, I liked with the Phillies. They were my second team. Um, you know, they obviously got some brand names. So I don't know if we're being like a fan here and saying they got Noah, they got Robertson, guys we're but familiar with. But I like the little with. ones also, yeah, Marsh you and did. Sosa. Good for you. Yeah, I didn't yeah. Even, wasn't even going to mention them. And you're right about that. Marsh, very good defender, can play center. So that's something they needed. Robertson was a guy I thought the Yankees or Mets could look at. I mean... To me, of all the relievers, he was probably the best one, having a great year and has that playoff pedigree. And uh, Noah, yeah, he's not the same Noah. He's not throwing 100 miles an hour, but they needed to fortify that rotation. So I'm with you. I thought they did a great job. Who didn't you like, John? Well, uh, two teams uh, stuck out to me. I, so I went, Can I just guess? I'll, I'll yeah, let go you ahead. go. It's going to be the Cubs and the Red Sox, right? Yes. <laughs> Are you looking we've, at my page? Are no, you we've, we've been cheating. having the same conversation for about 32 we're, years, so I just feel like I'm renting space I, in your brain these yeah, days. I don't get the Red Sox. I mean, I realize Bloom is smarter than me. He went to Yale. They, they did not accept me at Yale, so he's a smarter guy than I am. I can't even I, spell Yale. I, I, yeah, <laughs> I, I, you went to NYU. It's not that terrible. I can um, spell NYU because it's NYU. I That's about you. the extent of uh, it. I don't so. get what they did. I mean, it, they're in the middle. It, it's hard for these teams in the middle. What do you do? Do you buy? Do you sell? The idea of threading the needle, it doesn't really work for me. I mean, maybe in the long run, but, I mean, they added Hosmer. I, I really didn't get it. They have Tristan Costas, right? Isn't he their best prospect who's a first baseman? I, yeah, it didn't make any sense to me. They added Tommy Pham. I like Tommy Pham personally. The reason I like him is because when I send him a message, he responds right away, and I say, oh, you're getting traded. He sends it back to me. Wow, he didn't even know. At least he, that's what he said. I like the guy, but... I mean, he's, you know, an okay outfielder. You know, I know he's famous for slapping uh, Jock Peterson. I'll, I'll, you know, everyone has a bad moment. I've, you know, you and I have had a couple, so I, I can give him a pass on that. I really just don't get what they did. John, I never have a bad moment. But I, I, I agree with you. I think that the current executives want to try to live in both worlds when they're in these places. Like, can we buy a little? Can we sell a little? But I'm not exactly sure what the Red Sox did. Did they sell enough? No, they didn't really build their farm system up with this. 
Did they buy enough to change their arc and get into the postseason? I mean, they still have to get healthy. I'm not sure. Could they really not have converted? Was J.D. Martinez's back spasms more that there was an industry afraid to acquire him for anything good? I just feel like they didn't go either way, and that didn't help them in 2022, and it didn't help them in 2023 going forward. As far as the Cubs, I just feel like I'm watching Wilson Contreras and Ian Happ hug each other out. So I'm figuring somebody in the organization <laughs> has told them, hey, guys, hug each other out. You know, like, enjoy your last moments yeah. here at Wrigley. Well, you can't it. let you that know. happen. Like, you have to talk to those guys and tell them there's a realistic chance that we're going to get to 6 p.m. on August 2nd and you're not traded. So, you yeah. know, be careful what you do here. So those guys were under this strong impression, did this. You don't trade Wilson Contreras. So maybe is it possible the industry saw him? The Mets were interested and the Mets were going to catch him. If the Mets got him, they were going to catch him. So they thought he was good enough and clearly the Cubs didn't like what the Mets were offering. The Mets made offers for David Robertson. They made offers for Wilson Contreras. They made offers for Wilson Contreras and David Robinson in the same trade. So clearly they didn't meet the mark for it. So at that point, the Cubs have to feel like through the qualifying offer, they could get more by either Contreras saying yes and playing again for them next year or in a draft choice. It felt bizarre. Yeah, well, we'll hit on the Mets in the next segment, and I, and I will hit on them yeah. as well, as I think their fans are too. But, I mean, as far as the guys hugging each other and looking happy, I mean, that's what it is to be a Cub. They love being a Cub. You saw him at the All-Star game. Contreras said he wanted to stay, so I, I guess he got his wish. It's a lot of fun there. Everybody, there's beer flowing. Uh, it's great bars. I you know, they you sound like you've sampled. I, no, I'm not a big beer drinker, but I, I do love Chicago. I get it. Um, I don't get what they did. I'm not really sure where they're going. I love the way they were run at one time. I didn't get what they did in the offseason. I didn't get Marcus Stroman coming in. Uh, a bunch of young players. This is Jackson a Frazier. angry guy. Clint Frazier, right? Jackson now. Frazier now. Oh, he changed his name. I forgot. Yeah, I mean, you know, this is he didn't fifth, change his game though because he's no, not on the fifth team. overall player. Wasted talent. It's sad, but I, you know, I'm really not getting it. They don't love Contreras. They have not made him an offer since 2018. If you don't love him, there's got to be a deal out there for him. I can excuse Hap. He's got a year to go. They can figure it out. They can trade him next year. I got what they did last year. This deadline, I think they it was a bust. John, you teased it a couple of times because coming up next on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman, we're going to talk about the Mets and the Yankees and Jacob DeGrom's return to the mound. John, for a team that has spent most of the year with conversations if they could catch the 1998 Yankees for the most wins and best record this year, etc., obviously they're in a fight now with both the Astros and the Dodgers for that. Yankees made a lot of changes and trades here at the deadline I think the most shocking one came literally right at the deadline. We both knew they were working on big stuff. I I think they got a lot of their stuff done prior. You know, Benatendi, yeah. Montas, F. Ross, Trevino. We got to define our Trevinos now. Lou Trevino. The day before and the hours before so that they could spend trade deadline day kind of big game hunting. And I think they were after Pablo Lopez and some yeah. other stuff. And they ended up at the deadline trading Jordan Montgomery for an injured player. Harrison Bader, yes, plant fascist, is on the injured list until at least September. What did you think of all this? Well, you know, I thought they did a great job early. And they, they were like playing with house money by that uh, final day there. And, uh, you know, just big game hunting, as you said. Obviously, Montas, good move. Benintendi, I mean, a lot of hits there, especially compared to Gallo. Efros uh, looks really good as in the bullpen. So 
Um, you know, I liked the beginning. Uh, they did better than most teams, uh, but I'm just going to give them a B plus. I didn't get that last move at all. If they had added Pablo Lopez, I would have loved it. I mean, he's a good pitcher. I know he's not a really hard thrower. Maybe he didn't really fit them the way they like hard throwers. Uh, they certainly gave it a run with Lopez. I would have loved that. I didn't get the Montgomery thing. To me, you never have enough pitching. You talked about cliches. There's a cliche for you. I don't understand it. I know it's clear they did not like Montgomery for whatever. Not personally. He's a very nice, pleasant fellow. They didn't like him as a pitcher. That's pretty clear. To trade somebody for an injured player with probably, I haven't looked, but 700 OPS, something like that. Not a great offensive player, although Bader is a great defender. That tells you they didn't think much of him. They don't think he can pitch in the playoffs for them, and I get it. They're going to be in the playoffs. They don't have to worry about wrapping up the first place, but I did not like that move. They had time, and they could have come up with Lopez if they'd given some more prospects. That I would have loved. I agree. I didn't understand the trade because I know one of their trepidations going into this trade deadline was about durability of the rotation. They have arguably the most durable starter in Cole leading it off. You know, he's kind of, this is a flammable job, but he's a 30-start, 200-inning kind of guy. Their second most kind of reliable guy since coming back from his Tommy John surgery for simply taking the ball over and over again was Jordan Montgomery. Like, you might not love the results over and over again, but he had been at least league average or a little better for a couple of years. Now he took the ball. What does Nesta Cortez look like as he builds up towards 30 starts? Never has gotten close to that. They're worried about Tyon Severino's already out. They traded J.P. Sears in the right. in the Montas trade, who had given them some depth. They're now trying to stretch out Clark Schmidt again. I know you're saying they don't love Montgomery. I don't think they love Domingo Herman, who's now part no. of this rotation until Severino gets back in September. If they could stretch Severino out on the side, I just worry about that. And look, I know one of their other concerns is they don't want to exhaust Aaron Judge by playing him in center field all the time. So I think Aaron Hicks is going to play center a lot in August. Sorry, Yankee fans. I know you don't love him. I think that that's going to happen. But well, I that also didn't that happen with the Benintendi trade. You got yeah, a left a fielder. And, I yeah. mean, Gallo was a right fielder. But my bigger thing is, I get it. Bader is a very modern player. If you talk to whoever organization, whatever versions of wins above replacement they use, he's big, right? He's superb defender, superb base runner, right? But when I watch him play, I always feel like he's playing too fast. Like there's always mistakes of aggression, if you want to call it, or hero ball. And I wonder about that. He's coming home. He's from Bronxville, I believe. If that gets worse, by the way, we don't even see him till September. Him and Severino, those might feel like trades in September if they come along. Did not love that trade. But I would just wonder overall, John, because I don't want to lose it here. Frankie Montas, Benetton, two relievers. Are the Yankees better, and you're the point, not from now until October 1st, but from October 1st on, because they've got to try to win a championship, than they were before the trade. Yeah, I mean, I think they're a little better. I'm sorry to harp on this, but to me, if you got Lopez, you would have been much better. And they did a good job with Montas. They didn't give up their top four prospects, so I like that, but... I'm with you on Bader. You know, that was not the Cardinal way. He did not play. So I'm not surprised that they traded him. He does have great metrics. He is a great defender. He is very confident. You know, obviously Gallo did not work in New York. This is a guy from Bronxville, went to Horace Mann. 
His mother worked at Sports Illustrated when I was at Sports Illustrated. He's a New Yorker. Do so you they, have his whole resume there? Are you no, just, I mean, oh. he was on MLB Now with me. I think he was on yeah, with well, you one we, time, we right? He's together, a very, yeah. very confident young man. And, you know, I, they, they probably knew that. They scout everything now, and they probably like that. You know, I just don't get it. I love the depth in the pitching. They lost a little of that here for me. No doubt. On the subject of pitching, Jacob deGrom came back on uh, Tuesday on trade deadline day. That was about the biggest thing the Mets did. So why don't we start there? Before we get to DeGrom and his meaning, the Mets kind of made a bunch of incremental moves over the last yeah. few days. You know, they added two lefty hitters in Naquin and Volgoback. They added Darren Ruff on trade deadline day, and they added Michael Givens to try to be another bridge guy to Edwin Diaz in the end. What did you think of the Mets trade deadline? Yeah, I didn't like it. You kind of knew something was going on. You said there was they were going to make incremental moves. I think the headline said they were going to make incremental moves. I almost stopped reading. No offense. I almost stopped reading at you that know, point. We don't write the headlines I, over at the New I, York Post, I know, but I want to read about the Mets getting. We'd kind of said, we knew they needed some another hitter. So there were a lot of hitters available. There was Contreras. There was Mancini, Crone, potentially. I mean, there were guys out there who could be not platoon players, to be real players, and maybe we overplayed it. Maybe we were wrong. Maybe this was their plan all along to get these platoon-type players. It's hard to get excited about. You know, I get it that Darren Ruff is good against lefties and Vogelback is good against righties, but, you know, in today's day and age where the starting pitcher doesn't last that long, they could switch a righty for a lefty like that and then – you switch back, maybe, I don't know. It's better to have a good player in there than a good half player. Yeah, John, I, if you're a listener of the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman and you listen to Sandy Alderson, we've referenced this both on that podcast that day and then in some of the columns yeah. we've written. Sandy Alderson, the president of the Mets, mentioned, you pointed this out, mm. Pete Crow Armstrong yes. over and over as if he was a son of his and his disappointment that he got traded for a rental player in Javier Baez who's now gone and Crow Armstrong was hurt at the time and subsequently has become one of the better prospects in the sport in 2022. And it was clear that the Mets, with a very top-heavy farm system, were going to be very protective. Now, I think like if Otani actually got out in the market or the Nationals were willing to deal in the NL East sure. with the Mets or there was another kind of difference maker, I think the Mets would have gone to the top of their farm system to try to do this. But without that player out there, they were very protective of the farm system. I think they feel like they did a lot of heavy lifting and got it right in the offseason with everything they did. Marte, Scherzer yes. in particular, but also Canna and Escobar and Bassett, plus man the manager, Buck Showalter. They're getting DeGrom back. They felt like, can we lengthen and deepen this team a little bit like the Braves did last yeah. year? Now, maybe the Braves were moons aligning. That doesn't ever happen again. And you're right, but to me, I mean, the Braves got bigger players. I mean, Rosario, Jock Peterson, who's a playoff pedigree, Soler, who's got almost more power than anybody except for Judge and Stanton. To me, these are not those kind of players. Yeah. I, I'm sorry. To me, to me, there were two that really stood out that they missed on. And I think we've mentioned them both already. One was David Robertson, which I really liked. If the Mets were not going to get a lefty, then Robertson's ability to really get not just righties, but lefties out. New York tested, playoff tested. I would have moved a lot in to yeah. make sure the Phillies didn't well, get Why are we and, giving them a pass on the lefty? If right. they're not going to, why couldn't they get a lefty? There was yeah. a lot of lefty. There was Chafin, there was Soda, there's their old guy, Loop, who they do. But, John, you does know, it why, say anything why not that, have a lefty that, on the that, team? That no, none of them moved. 
Does that say something about I mean, that the that teams the maybe wanted the t- overpays? Look yes. what the Reds got. The Reds got an overpay from from the Mariners. They did great. I mean, obviously, we know the Nats. You know, in a sense, may have got an overpay. I, ultimately, I think Soto's going to be. You can't regret Soto, but it's just. Seems like you had to do an overpay, and we had Sandy on, and he was a fantastic guest. We love Sandy, and he kept mentioning Pete Crow Armstrong. I mean, I saw him at the Futures game. He doesn't look like Aaron Judge. I mean, I, I shouldn't, you know, you shouldn't judge Are there a book. lot of baseball players who well, look like Aaron Judge? He doesn't look like Mickey Mantle. I mean, now I'm dating myself. Yes. You know, he's a little guy. I guess I, I'm not really a scout. I shouldn't go by that, but... To think that you gave up some Mike Trout, I, I don't think they did. Pete Crow Armstrong is still a minor league player. They have so much regret about giving him up for Baez, who actually played very well for them. The rest of the guys around him did not play well. I know he did the thumbs down thing, whatever. It was a logical trade. They gave up a decent prospect. I think he's going to be a decent player. He's not a great offensive player. I think they just had too much regret over Pete Crow Armstrong. We'll say, now, save the tape. Maybe he becomes Mickey Mantle or Mike Trout or whatever. I don't see it. Jake, save the tape. Um, I think they're the anti-preller. I, I really do. Yeah. They're too far. we got to keep all of these guys. I mean, I'm with you. They would have considered trading Beatty and Contreras if they could have gotten Otani and Soto. That, that wasn't going to happen. But I think they really should have considered trade. Maybe not those two guys, but three, four, five, or six are they going to be huge stars at the major league level? They got a chance now with DeGrom coming back, and that, that's obviously huge. I mean, the best pitcher in the game went healthy. They got a chance now to win it all. I know he said he wanted to win in his first five years. They got a chance in year two. Got to take advantage of that chance. They didn't, yeah. to me, they didn't do enough. David Robinson and Christian Vasquez were the two. I, I'll say this is a think about how much they rude giving up Jared Kelnick. Right. As a, and historically, it's going to, like, at least in the short term, Kelnick has not hit yet in the major leagues. He struck out a lot. Yeah. And now Edwin Diaz is arguably the best relief pitcher in the whole Oh, yeah. Sport. I mean, he's one of the most valuable players in the game. Yeah. And you know, you're not as big on this as me, probably, but I love it when he comes in the game. It's, yeah. it's an added bonus. My daughter is a big Mets fan who's 50. I mean, I think all the Mets fans get th- are thrilled with this narco, and he comes in and he strikes everybody out. I mean, he's been amazing. So I, I don't want. I'm glad you mentioned this, that Kelnick. But l- uh, let's not talk about him again. He's done nothing. He has a negative WAR. You know, he may be a good major league player. We'll see. That trade was a good trade. And how many years did they regret that trade for? Yeah. So let's talk about what probably is going to be their best acquisition. And that's simply getting Jacob DeGrom back. He was on the mound Tuesday night against the Nationals for five innings. If you didn't know, besides that, normally he would have gone seven or eight the way he was pitching. It looked like Jacob DeGrom. I think he was up over 100 a few times. So the next big thing is going to be, how does he feel the next day? Does he make his next start? Supposed to pitch on regular rest. What does it mean for the Mets to get Jacob DeGrom? I mean, that's huge. I mean, you know, obviously we didn't love what they did at the deadline. They didn't get any big players. I will say I do like Michael Givens. We'll... I got to throw him a bone on that. Uh, he's a good reliever, but I mean, this is huge. You know, if he can just stay healthy, to have that one-two punch, no one is going to want to pitch against him. There's the obvious. He's Jacob DeGrom, and when he's right, you maybe would want to pitch him as a starter instead of anyone else living on the planet. So that's the obvious. But just to deal with the trade deadline, his ability to stay healthy and the rest of the rotation's ability to stay healthy. We'll see if they're right or wrong about this. I think they think the fastball and especially the slider of David Peterson 
is going to play up in the bullpen and give them a lefty reliever at some point. But he can only do that if their rotation stays healthy. They can't do it right away. They've got two doubleheaders coming up. He's the sixth starter. If Tyler McGill could come back and give them a power arm in the bullpen, that will feel like another guy. But that's about Jacob deGrom and the other starters staying healthy now. And that's not as good as if they had gotten David Robinson and Matt Moore, for example. But at this point... Once you hit 6 p.m. on August 2nd, all you got is ifs. You can't make trades anymore. So to me, Jacob deGrom's importance is not just Jacob deGrom, but his ability to pitch and stay healthy. There's a pathway now for their bullpen to get better now that they can't make any trades, but he's got to stay healthy and effective. Yeah, I mean, it's great that deGrom is back. He's the best pitcher in the game when healthy. But once again, I did not love their deadline. I don't know why they needed to hold on to all these prospects. They just had a draft where they had more of the top 60 players than anybody else. Um, so they have prospects. Obviously, the top two prospects, they can hold on to them, and they're great. They missed out. I'm with you. Robertson and Vasquez were the answer. Yeah, those were the two uh, I would have loved to see him get. Unfortunately, we're going to have to turn uh, a little sad in our next segment on the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman. Michael Kay, play-by-play man for the Yankees, Fordham grad. We'll talk about a Fordham grad who was the greatest play-by-play man in history, Vin Scully. John, uh, I think this is probably the saddest moment on our still relatively new podcast. Uh, Vin Scully passed away on Tuesday. He was 94, 67 years as the broadcaster of the Dodgers. That's Brooklyn to all the years in Los Angeles. That's Jackie Robinson to Clayton Kershaw and everything in between. And when we put our heads together and we thought, who can join us on this show to help put this in any perspective whatsoever for, it is not just a friend of the show, but our friend, Michael Kay. He was on the Yankee Beat with us way back when. He's one of our best friends. Michael not only went to Fordham like Vin Scully, but he's practicing the art form as a play-by-play man, the excellent play-by-play man of the Yankees on Yes. Mike, first of all, thank you for joining us. I could ask a question, but... The question is essentially Vin Scully for somebody who followed him at Fordham and followed him into the TV play-by-play booth and the radio play-by-play and the TV radio booth. Can you offer some perspective on on the man and really a legend of this industry? Well, Joel, the, the best perspective I could have that we live in an age now where people debate the goats. You know, it, it makes for great fodder for the debate shows on TV where people could scream about Tom Brady or Joe Montana. There's no debate when it comes to Vince Scully. He is the greatest broadcaster who ever lived. He took the art form of broadcasting and made it an art. That's all there is to it. His broadcasts are literary masterpieces. If you put music to it, it would almost be lyrical and uh, song bird-like. He used words with precision. He was just amazing. He really was. Uh, Those of us that do this job, it's almost an embarrassment to say that we do the same thing as Vince Scully. We really don't. No one will ever do it the way Vince Scully did it. No one ever did it the way Vince Scully did it before he came about. Uh, And he turned it into something that we all aspire to be just a small sliver of. You know, when I found out the news last night, I was driving home from the Yankee game. And really, it hit me in the pit of my stomach. And I can't say that I'm friends with Vin Scully. But every time you met Vin Scully, he made you feel as if he was a longtime friend. And I don't think there's a person that has ever met Vin Scully that has a bad word to say about him. Uh, And that's very rare in this business, which is 
a business that's full of vipers. He was just, he's just an amazing man and an amazing broadcaster. Yeah, that's a perfect answer, Michael. And I would agree with you 100%. I would say uh, the two debates you can't have, Mariano Rivera, the greatest closer in the history of the game, and Vince Scully, the greatest baseball broadcaster ever. And I'm glad that you put it that way. I agree with you 100%. His storytelling and having an interesting thing to say about every player amazed me about Vince Scully. I don't know where he came up with all this. He must have had a team of researchers. I don't know. What was it exactly that you thought made him the best? Well, the, the fact that he could do it for 67 years and remain relevant, and when he walked away, people still wanted more. They, they weren't really finished listening to him. Tells you how amazing he was. And the 67 years you know, gave him an incredible reservoir of information. He had an amazing memory where he can recall things and tie them back to, you know, even Connie Mack. You know, when you play that silly game, the, the six degrees of Kevin Bacon, if you think about it, the people that Vince Scully broadcasted from the beginning of his career in 1950, it goes all the way back almost to the beginning of baseball. So he had all of that at his disposal and he was able to employ it at the right time, the perfect time. Uh, it wasn't intrusive on the game. He didn't have gimmicks. He didn't He didn't have uh, catchphrases, so to speak. He did it because he was talking to people. And people felt that they were listening to a game with a friend who was able to tell these stories better than anybody could tell them. Uh, and I think there's a couple of generations of people that lived in Los Angeles that looked at Vince Scully as the Dodgers. Imagine this, guys. He is probably the most famous Dodger of all time. And this is one of the most iconic franchises in sports history. Uh, he was friends with Jackie Robinson, and he actually ice skated with Jackie Robinson back in New York. He was re- very good friends with Gil Hodges. And as Joel said, it goes all the way from Jackie Robinson to Clayton Kershaw. I mean, the reservoir of information collected and was able to disseminate just really is it's breathtaking. Mike, you mentioned that he was non-obtrusive. You could feel his humility doing the, the games in part because he made it about the games and the players, and not himself, and in that way became a giant star because people like the style. We do live in more of a look-at-me age than ever before. I wonder, again, as somebody who followed him at Fordham and followed him into both a radio and a TV booth, is there anything you took from Scully over the years that you use because it was Vin Scully and you thought it would be valuable for you as well? Well, I think storytelling is so important. Uh, I, I try to incorporate that. Uh, obviously, broadcasts now are different. They're so fast-paced and uh, everything is sponsored. I know that you know for many years, Vin Scully had, had to fight having his broadcast be like any other broadcast. This was different. He worked alone. Nobody works alone anymore. Uh, and I don't think that any network uh, executive or regional sports network executive would allow it. But the, the, the biggest thing that I took from him, uh, and I try to be, I don't know if I succeed, I, I think it's important when people meet somebody that's in their living room, you know, 162 games about a year. And I just try to be nice to people that meet me because, you know, Vince Scully had this disarming way. You know, I, I was listening to a podcast uh, of Keith Olbermann, uh, who was a good friend of Scully's. And, and he, he reminded me that I met Vince Scully on April 4th of 1999 when the Yankees played an exhibition game in L.A. against the Dodgers. And I had Keith Olbermann introduce me to Scully. And I was shaking. I was just so nervous. Uh, I just couldn't believe it. You, all, you almost felt like you were in the presence of royalty. And Olbermann introduced me. And he was just totally disarming. And he made you feel important. And he made you feel as if this was an, this was an important conversation for him as well. 
I, I try to take a little bit of that. Anybody I meet, I, I, I would never, ever, uh, you know, be short with anybody, no matter how much time uh, is of the essence when you're in this business. That little meeting that you could have with somebody could be something that re they remember for a long time. Now, no one's going to meet me and have the same effect as me meeting Vince Scully, but I, I, it's simple and it sounds kind of dumb and hokey, but I just try to be nice to people because I just felt Vince Scully just was always nice to people. And I think that's an important thing in the society now. I don't think enough people do it. I'm going to echo just what you said. I, terrific guy. I'm unbelievable. I met him only a couple times. He, he treated me like he was an, I was an old friend of his. And uh, here I'm meeting this icon. And obviously, I was nervous, just like you were the first time. What do you recall? I mean, when you went to Fordham, he was already an iconic broadcaster. He'd already been broadcasting for a generation at that point. What do you recall at Fordham? and the connection that you have with him and both of you have with Fordham together? Well, it's funny. There's, you know, there's this little rivalry between the broadcasting uh, wings of Fordham and Syracuse. And if you sit down with the Syracuse alum, you know, they'll throw names at you. And, you know, it's a game you can't win if you're playing against Fordham. We just say Vince Scully and, you know, <laughs> you drop the mic. There's nobody else. I mean, he, if you talk about, like, the greatest graduates – you know, Alan Alda went to Fordham and, and Denzel Washington and Vince Lombardi. And still, if I'm playing that game, just not with sports broadcasters, I'm, I'm starting with Vince Scully and I've got a pretty big lead. Everybody that ever crossed through the, the, the walls of the doors of WFUV, the student radio station, Vince Scully really is our patron saint. I mean, everybody aspires to be just a little bit like him. You know, my, my interaction with him is that uh, they have an award at FUV for alums. And it's not necessarily for people that went to Fordham. It's called the Vince Scully Award. For some reason, a couple of years ago, I happened to win it. And one of my most cherished times ever on the air on my radio show, I didn't know I won it. And um, my producer surprised me. And Vince Scully was on the phone. And he said, oh, wow. I just wanted to tell you, Michael, <laughs> that, you know, you, you are the recipient of. Uh, and, you know, that's I still have a tape of that. And, and, and then when I got the award at a, at a ceremony in Lincoln Center, you know, Ben didn't didn't travel anymore in his later years, and he just taped like a two or three minute introduction for me, which is something I cherish as well. So, just a small part of the lineage of of WFUV with guys like Mike Green, and I don't want to leave anybody out, so I'm not going to name everybody. But all of us look up to Vince Scully, and we just can't believe that we come from the same line as he does. And you know, obviously, the line as you move along along the years is weakened because when you start with something like Vince Scully, you certainly can't get better from that. Mike, uh, we were correct that we couldn't have had somebody better sum this up. And I just don't want to say goodbye because I want to recognize that I've spent a lot of time with you in public, restaurants, bars, etc. And what you said earlier about Vin Scully, you know I've made reference to you uh, about this, is I cannot believe how kind you are to each person who comes up and recognizes you and wants to ask whatever the broadcasting question is, the Yankee question. So I want to make sure that our listeners know that wasn't lip service. Right. That is actually True. what Michael K does in public. As you know, I struggle with it, Mike. And to see somebody who is so comfortable at doing it, it is impressive. And you are carrying on the legacy of Vin Scully. And we should note the Michael K show. Listen, yes, broadcast the play-by-play -play man. And most important to John and, and myself, our friend. Thank you so much, Michael K, for joining us Thanks, on, on the show. Thank you. Thanks so much, guys, for having me on to talk about Ben. And we'll be back to wrap up the show with Joel Sherman and John Heyman right after this. 
John, you worked in Southern California. I wonder what your memory of Vin Scully is. Yeah, my memory of Vin Scully is more recent than that. Um, what a terrific gentleman. And Mike was absolutely right. And that was the perfect guest, Joel. You were right about that. Uh, my memory of Vin Scully is when I went, I went out with Dennis Gilbert, who's a longtime agent and now a baseball executive in L.A. when I was vacationing there. And I was out with my daughter. And he represented, uh, he was an agent for Vin Scully. And his next uh, appointment was with Vin. And we happened to meet Vin. And he was so nice. He could not have been nicer to me and to my daughter. And she remembers it to this day. This was many years ago. And she brings up the name of Vin Scully all the time. She's a big baseball fan. And she just recalls. And Mike was absolutely right. He's such a nice guy beyond being the greatest baseball broadcaster ever, just a true gentleman. Yeah, you know, one of the great things about getting the baseball package whenever that came along was you could cover a Met or Yankee game in New York and then come home and you'd get the last few innings of a Dodger game and I'd get to hear Vin Scully. And that, as you know how important my dad was to me and baseball was important, it was another way we connected. My dad listened to Vin Scully in Brooklyn doing Brooklyn (laughs) Dodger games on the radio And I got to do it 50 years later, listening to him on the TV, do Dodger games as eloquently and excellently and still at the top of the field as he's ever been. He came in the best. He went out the best. And rest in peace, Vin Scully. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the show from the New York Post. Thanks to Jake Brown, our always tremendous producer, for producing the show. Follow us on Twitter. John's at at John Heyman. I'm at Joel Sherman one, the number one. And please join us every week on the show with Joel Sherman and John Hayden.